Amen. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. My name is Drew, if we've not met. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you know, uh, this is an important week for our nation. I don't have to tell you that. And there's a lot of anxiety. And I probably, I don't think I have to tell you that either. And so every pastor in America that I know has been racking their brain all week. What do you talk about? How can we best help our people? And uh, the best thing I know to do is to say this, that there's a lot at stake and we can't be passive or resigned. It's right and right, fully engaged in the coming days in our country to be good citizens, which means to desire the best for this place we live and to... Uh, and its people, and to fight for whatever pr- promotes human flourishing, and uh, and all of that. But as you do, uh, the kind of the thing that I want to talk about this morning, and maybe in the next few weeks, uh, and then some of the implications. As you do all of that, as you as you go through this next week, and as we do so together, uh, don't forget your true citizenship. The Apostle Paul said, and we've already read it: our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so remember that you belong to heaven. And anchor your hope in heaven and not anything that happens on this earth. That's how, if you go on in Philippians chapter 4 there, I've never really connected that verse at the end of chapter 3 with all the things we love that he says in chapter 4. He goes on to talk about being able to stand firm and rejoice and keep your calm and not grow anxious. And so that's how you do it. By remembering your true citizenship is what allows you to stand firm and rejoice. It's how you just, you're, you're able to not get swept up into the frenzy and keep your calm. But there's a balance that we have to manage in these things, isn't there? And C.S. Lewis, as usual, strikes, I think, the balance. He says it better than I could, and so I'm just going to quote him. It's a famous passage from his book in Mere, Mere Christianity where he says this. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that Christians must do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. He goes on, he says, it's actually since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so effective in this one. And then the really famous line, he says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, but aim at earth, you'll get neither. You'll miss out on both. And that, to me, is a good summary of what the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians 4. And it's probably the thing that I could leave you with that I think would be the most helpful to you. Aim at heaven. Aim your life at heaven. And in the coming days, aim your hope and your joy and your heart's greatest desire at heaven. John Piper once said, yes, he says, I admit it's possible to be so heavenly minded that we are no, of no earthly good. He said, the problem is, is I've never met one of those people. And I think that's right. And so we should be people who remember our true citizenship. And I think of the scene at the very end of the Narnia books, which you, if you've been around, you know that I adore. The Last Battle is the name of the book. And at the, at the end of the book, they, they wake up after being killed in battle. And the unicorn uh, leads the way. He stomps his feet and, uh, and he speaks for all of them there. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. And so as we go through the next few weeks together, remember, remember your real country. And two things will happen if you do that. The first is your life will take shape around the gospel story. Uh, and the gospel story is the true story of what's happening in the world. 
And the election this week is just the subplot of that story. But there's a bigger story. There's a greater story. There's a truer story, and we're people of that story, so we should not forget that. And so if you remember your citizenship, it will allow you, your life, to take shape around the gospel story. And and belonging to the gospel story will put you in a posture of waiting. Waiting. No matter how things go this coming Tuesday, we're still waiting. Because the rescue we need is through the Savior who comes from heaven. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. The Lord Jesus Christ... The Old Testament, all of the scriptures there were written to people who were looking for the coming Messiah. And then he came. And he was here for the briefest of moments. And then gone with the promise that he would come again. And the rest of the New Testament was written to people who were looking for his second coming. So in both cases, as you read throughout the whole Bible, God's people have been forced into a posture of waiting for the coming Savior. And we're waiting still. And that's what it means to live out your heavenly citizenship. But in the Bible, waiting is not passivity. It's not resignation. It's simply refusing to put your ultimate hope and joy in any earthly person or movement or outcome. We're waiting for the Savior. Do you see the title of the sermon? I like it. The Coming Serpent Crusher. And that's our topic this morning. From the passage in Genesis 3. So if you look there in the scriptures that we've printed for you, we're going to talk about the coming serpent crusher. Genesis 3 is the account of man's fallen to sin. It's the origin story for all the bad stuff in the world. However, it's not just about sin. It's also full of gospel. Actually, the very first gospel declaration, the proto-gospel, is in these verses where God promises that in all the darkness that the world contains, a rescuer would come, and it sets the stage for the rest of the story the Bible tells. So let's just read these few verses here from Genesis chapter 3, if you would, with me, beginning in verse 14, just two verses, Uh, and then we'll pick up the rest of the story as we go along. Hear God's word. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Genesis is the account of the creation of the world. And it goes like this. God made everything good, and he blessed it. And he put the man and the woman there in a beautiful garden filled with everything they needed to live a full And happy life. And God Himself would come into the garden to walk and talk with them in the cool of the day, and everything was the way that it was said it was until a serpent slithered into the garden, intent on ruining everything, and through deception and lies he seduced the man and the woman into his rebellion. And now Christians, you need to know, if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure about this whole faith thing, Christians believe that the Genesis story is history. And we believe that the serpent is, in fact, a real personal evil that is loose in the world. The Bible calls him by many names, the devil, Satan, the dragon, in Revelation 12. And this is no myth. This is an account of reality. This is how the world is today as we encounter it. And these verses we read are part of an address that God makes to the rebel alliance the serpent and the man and the woman. He first first addresses the serpent, and then he turns to the woman, 
And then lastly, to the man. Now, we've singled out what he has to say to the serpent here in these verses because they are where they are the part that contains the, the true gospel lesson. And, and they're really two things, I think. And I'm going to be really brief this morning. There, there are two lessons, two main lessons for us as we contemplate what God is, the, the promises God is making to us in this cursing of the serpent and then the promise that a rescuer would come. And the first is that we are clearly called to fight. There's a real evil foot in the world, and we are not to be passive in the face of it. The world is enemy-occupied territory, and the agenda of this enemy is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to take everything that is good and ruin it, and we're not meant to look on. We're meant to fight. It says there, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. I mean, God tells the serpent that, and that's us. And so we must not be apathetic in the face of evil. That betrays our being made in the image of God. We are to stand up and fight and do all we can to push back the darkness and turn the whole world into the garden of God, which was the commission we had at the beginning. And in that great work, we have a spiritual enemy, and he has declared war against us. And we're called to fight. Though that fight, I should say, looks much different than you might think at first. It's not a flesh and blood fight fight, we're told. Our weapon is not military might or, or political coalition. Our weapon is the truth of the gospel that has divine power to demolish spiritual strongholds. And we're called to fight. But the other thing is, the second main lesson is as we fight, we're also called to wait. To not mistake our place in the drama playing out in the universe. We fight, but we're not the hero. My son, I love him. My oldest son, uh, he dreams every night a different scenario where he's the hero and he rescues the people he loves. It's just a part of how God's made him, and he's going to grow up to be pretty something special, but that's not us. We have dreams of that, but that is, that is ultimately not the, the role we play. This comes out in the text. If you look there in chapter 15, it's a bit of Hebrew parallelism where there are two lines of poetry that uh, in the second restates the first. This is You see this all over the Psalms and all over the Bible, in fact. But the, the second, though, it's restated with some meaningful difference. And so in the second line, it says, it, what happens is, is it changes from the plural to the singular. And as you're reading, it's meant to be a surprise. Because it, typically that sort of thing wouldn't happen. And so you're to read it and think, hmm, that's weird. I wonder what that means. And so you notice there, it says, it comes out of nowhere. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. All of that's in the plural. But then you get to the next line, and he, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, singular again, his heel. So God is put, putting the serpent on notice here. And he's reminding us, too, that we live by gospel, which means that the ultimate victory will be won for us and not by us. And we look outside of the world for salvation, to God, to the promised Savior who would come. For Christians, this is Jesus Christ. He is the great serpent crusher. And in his coming into the world, he won the decisive battle. I mean, talking about the cross, he said this. He said, now, now is the time for the ruler of this world to be cast out. And so the death blow has been dealt. And you know, there's enough snakes in Florida. You know, you cut off the head of a snake and it'll thrash around for a few minutes. I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or not, but I've been told you can even be bitten once the head's removed. And that's what you see in the world today. I know it seems more profound than that. But again, the right perspective 
Evil, evil is thrashing around a bit, but it's on its way out. The head has been cut off. But we're not there yet. We're not all the way there yet. Not until the serpent crusher comes again. But this time in power and glory to do away with evil once and for all. And listen, friends, his coming is our hope. You with me? His coming is our hope. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the promise of the coming serpent crusher in those verses in Genesis gives us a song to sing. Even in the face of evil, even in the face of all of our worries and fears about what might happen in the coming days, the best thing, and this is the other piece of pastoral advice that I could give you, the best thing that we can do in the weeks to come, in the days to come, is to worship our way through them. To worship our way through Tuesday and next week and next month and the years to come. And so what I want to do is I want to turn to Psalm 37 because that's because I thought of when I started to meditate on these passages. And I want you to see how what, what this does, this promise of the coming serpent crusher gives us a song to sing. And it's going to sound a lot like Psalm 37 if, if it begins to be formed on our mouths. And so let's read from Psalm 37 also if you would. And here's what it says. We've already referenced it a little bit. You can see it there on the screen behind me or on your TV at home, or you can read in the, in the worship folder. And here's what the psalmist says. He says, fret not yourselves because of evildoers, and be not anxious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act, and he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So here's what I want to do as we just close this morning. I just want to walk us through that psalm a bit and pray that it becomes the, the, the song that we sing in the coming days. It begins with a simple command, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. You notice that there, verse 1? In fact, three times. Throughout these verses, for emphasis, because this is the theme, fret not, fret not. And I look around and I see a lot of fretting. And it might feel like there are reasons to fret. You might look and say, gosh, it feels like evil is gaining momentum and might soon have the upper hand. And what I love about the Psalms is the Psalms is actually honest about this. Look at verse 7. He says, fret not over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. He says, in fact, there are times when this does happen, when evil seems to be winning. And it can be, cause, it can be a cause of losing faith, but it shouldn't be because what we're told and the way it's reframed in these verses is, is that it's a temporary reality. It's an injustice that God promises to right in the end. And the psalmist reminds us of this truth to give us courage. And so over and over again, he beats this into us. He says, verse 3, 
Don't worry, fret not, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And then again in verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off. And then again in verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And for the sake of time, I didn't include verses 12 and 13, which I should have. Here's what they say. If you have your Bible, you can look. It says, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day coming. The wicked draw the sword to slay those whose way is upright, but their sword shall enter into their own heart. That's what God says. So don't panic at the gathering darkness. Don't be naive, but don't panic because God isn't panicking. What's God doing? (laughs) This is tough, but it says he sees those plotting and those scheming against the righteous to do harm to those he loves, and he laughs. He mocks because he knows what's coming. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but eventually all the schemes to do evil will return upon the evildoers themselves. And the Apostle Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4. He says, rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray. And then he says, because the Lord is at hand. And the word there, I learned, this is something new I learned this morning. The word there, the Lord is at hand, it refers to, it's a weird construct, it's a weird word. It means, it refers to a bent arm. And it means we are cradled in God's arm. And he's squeezing us tight the way a parent does to a child. He's holding on to us and protecting us from any evil. And it's, it's, you know, it's easy to look around and see the gathering threat and forget that God is near, that he's pay attention, paying attention, that he is rescuing, that he always rescues. But what it says here in this psalm is that a day will come soon when you will look around and all of those who seem to have the upper hand at the moment will be gone. And who will be left? It says, look, in verse 11, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more, but the meek shall inherit the land. (laughs) And Jesus, of course, quotes this in his Beatitudes, but he expands it. He says, the meek will inherit the whole earth. And here it means something very specific and important. The meek are the humble, the gentle people we talked about last week, those who refuse the allure of power. And there are pretty clear instructions in this psalm about how to endure the plotting of the wicked. That's what we're being, we're being discipled in meekness in the rest of this psalm about how we should approach the, the gathering darkness that seems so threatening. It says, for one thing, in verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. And I find that so interesting and so challenging because anger is so natural, but what we learn is that anger is often a substitute emotion. Most people are angry because they're afraid. The real emotion is fear underneath and it's just expressing itself in anger and you deal with the fear by becoming angry. But the psalmist warns about this. It says it only tends to evil. In other words, when you encounter evil and you get angry and you grab for power or you you call down lightning from heaven to destroy your enemies, what you're doing is you're perpetuating the evil. No, the only way to extinguish the evil is to choose meekness. I mean, if you try to beat Evil with anger, you'll lose. But the meek are those who win. That's what we're told. They are the ones left standing in the end. And so the rest of the psalm is just training in meekness. It says in verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And so there we are again, back to waiting. The scripture seems to always call us to waiting because the rescue comes from God. There's no way around the waiting. 
The world will not be free from the plotting of the wicked against the righteous until Jesus comes back to finish what he has started. That doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do, not at all. Look there, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. We're to do that. To not worry about the outcomes and just set ourselves to doing as much good as possible to as many people as possible. And one of the verses that I've been meditating on that I would point you towards in these days is, uh, especially as we approach the election, is 1 Timothy 2, which says that we're to pray that's our main responsibility in the coming days. Pray for our leaders. Pray for God's will to be done through this process. Live a Godward life. But it says a Godward life is also a quiet life. That's the word Paul uses there. And as a noun, it refers to the wilderness. And so <laughs> he's saying be a wilderness people. Because in the Bible, the people of faith are wilderness people. They live in the margins. They live away, immune from the hustle and the bustle, from all of the anxiety and the fretting and the oh, stirring up that can happen in the culture immune to all those rumblings. And it says that that kind of life is good. It pleases God. And so we read, trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land. And that means live in light of God's promises because the land was the place of God's special provision and blessing. He's saying, settle yourself down, settle yourself into the safety of God's embrace. And then verse three, befriend faithfulness. It's a great phrase. It's a reference to God's faithfulness. He's saying God has been faithful to you. He will always be faithful to you. So be faithful. Something like that. Delight yourself in the Lord, verse 3. Not in any circumstance or outcome. Delight yourself in him. Worship your way through Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act, it says. He will bring forth righteousness and justice for you. He will right every wrong. He will... He will make everything sad come untrue, man. There's just so much. There's so much here. We really, I'm trying to, have you caught the trick? I'm trying to preach two sermons in one sermon. Did you get that? Thank you. Appreciate it. You're getting two for one this morning. But there's just so much. There's so much here. But perhaps we should just end with this. What really I think we, we zero in on in this psalm is twice it says, trust in the Lord. And of course, that begs one question before we finish, and that is, well, how do I do that? What makes him trustworthy? And here's the answer. Going back to Genesis chapter 3 again, the only way for him to bruise the serpent, we're told there, was for him to be bruised himself. And it's amazing, it really is amazing that all the way back in Genesis, in the beginning, in the very first pages of our Bible, you get the cross. I mean, this one who would come, he would be victorious, but at great personal cost. Jesus Christ, the serpent crusher who would lay down his life in love for us. He dealt the, 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 the death blow to evil, but at the expense of his own life. And it's called there in Genesis, a bruised heel, because this one who would die, of course, on the third day, would rise again. So that now this one who loved you enough to die for you, he is seated in heaven, ruling over all things for you. Isn't that great news? And he is coming again. And salvation is coming with him. And all of the hopes that we have for the world are coming with him. But until he comes, we wait. We trust his heart and fret not. We do good and we endure. Looking to him, our savior, our champion, 
our true king, the coming serpent crusher. Amen? So let's pray. Would you pray? Father, as we prepare now to come to this table to be reminded yet again of your great heart for us, would you settle us? That's the word. Settle us. Settle us into your embrace. Settle us into the safety of being cradled in your great arms. The scripture says that though you are great and exalted above the heavens, that you're a gentle shepherd who picks up his sheep and cradles them in his arms and puts them close to his chest. And that is true of us. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. All of us who've put our faith and trust in you, you now rule and reign over all things for the sake of your church, to do good to your people. And we can be confident of that no matter what might happen in the coming days in our world. What great news. And so make us good news people, I pray. Make us gospel people. There's so much bad news. But we have really great news. We have good news. And so may the good news that we believe in our heart show up on our face and show up in the way that we talk. Would we be people who would be supernaturally empowered by your spirit to worship our way through the coming days that you might gain much glory in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isn't that good news? So my prayer for all of us is that we would settle into that and look at whatever might come in the days ahead uh, without fear. Fret not. Amen. Fret not. Believe his heart for you. The great servant crusher has won the decisive victory and he will come again. Uh, And while we wait on him, we go now being sent by him not to cower in a corner, but to go and confront evil wherever we find it knowing uh, that he has given authority to us. It says in the scriptures to tread on serpents. It actually says in Romans 16, 20, that he will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so he promises that you will share in that victory. But we go uh, knowing, uh, knowing that that's not something we accomplish on our own. We go with the promise of this benediction. But here's the other thing before you leave. Uh, there are going to be men as, as, we, uh, as, as you leave. We take a mercy offering at the end of every um, communion Sunday. And so give generously to that. We're trying to make up ground because of the weirdness of this year. Uh, That's one of the ways that we can love. But go, giving of your money generously, giving of your life generously, spending your life for the sake of the kingdom that is coming. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.